When my now 27-year-old son was little, we read to him and widely. The Bible, of course, but also Tolkien, Greek mythology, and given his mother's Swedish ancestry, Norse myths. It didn't take long for it to be clear to our dismay that in comparison with the Bible, the child preferred Wotan and Thor. That was so until we read him the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, and it became his favorite with terrible monsters with iron teeth climbing out of the slime to attack the people of God. Just his kind of stuff. I am glad to report that he now appreciates a wider range of the Word of God. Why even bring it up? Because there is hidden in our gospel reading this morning, like the prize you could find in the Cracker Jack in the old days, an allusion from Rabbi Jesus to the book of Daniel. At the end of the parable of the wise and foolish maidens, Jesus says, but watch, for you do not know the hour or the day. You see, Daniel was full of mysterious numbers. Words like a time and two times and half a time. And it was full of the struggle of symbolic and strange creatures. And at the end of all this travail, God brings in his kingdom once and for all, rewarding the righteous, punishing the evildoers. And throughout Christian history, uh, interpreters have struggled to understand the day and the hour. Now the experience of the people of God was anxiety that the world had spun out of control and the forces of evil had been let loose from the depths to run free. That was the fear in the time of the book of Daniel, perhaps 2,200 years ago. And that is a fear that you and I can understand well today. I am reminded of the words of the great Irish poet W.B. Yeats in the wake of of the blood-soaked madness of the First World War. A poem about the coming of a kingdom, but one that is not of God. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed. It is not at all hard for us to get a feel for what Yeats and further back, the book of Daniel were up to. It is exactly what the prophet Daniel was addressing with his numbers. That's why they were there. A way of saying that God has all of this in his hand. He is giving evil scope, but he will rein it in once and for all at his appointed time. The numbers were in service of divine comfort. But you and I all know how anxiety works. When we have it, we clutch hard and want a bit more control in our own hands. The certainty of God's rule, coupled with the uncertainty about the details for now, the reign of God coming, yes, but the lack of agency on our part, this is hard for us anxious human beings to tolerate. 
And so the word of surrender and comfort and fortitude, that side of Daniel, that side of 1 Thessalonians, gives way to our own arithmetic, one kind of numerology or another in our own hands. It is easy to think of other examples of this in history. But that is what Jesus is warning against in the last verse of the parable. It is not for you, not for us, to calculate the details as if we could thereby control a seemingly uncontrollable world. Todo está en las manos de Dios. It is all in God's hands. Yours, mine to hearken, to withstand, and to look up. Those alone. We are still a season away from Lent, but we do well to connect this message this morning with the story of the temptation of Jesus. For it is the same temptation, the difference being that we succumb to the temptation and he did not. You will recall that all of the temptations of our Lord at the beginning of his ministry offered by Satan were religious things. They were all good things turned evil and wrong by our own fear and our own pride. And so Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the holiest of places. And he dares him to jump so that the angels can, as the psalmist says, carry him up in their hands. Waiting is hard. The kingdom tarries. So says the devil, go ahead and force God's hand. Push the button yourself. Bring the kingdom now on your timetable. Surely sooner is better. Jesus is tempted to take the day and hour into his hands. But he says, no, it is not for us to test God, but rather to pray for the courage to rise to the test whose hour, which the hour we are given determines. It is not for us to dictate with our own distorted wills how and when the kingdom shall come, nor for us to suppose that we are here to help God out. This is hard since we can see the road of pain lying ahead of us, but it is God's truth to us this morning nonetheless. Here is another way to put the matter before us, the challenge we know well. On the one hand, everything depends on God who brings his kingdom in his time. But on the other hand, there surely is something for us to do in the meantime, since we are followers of his son. So how do we reconcile the Bible's message of powerlessness and receptivity, empty hands open to God's food, with the summons to be his servants? And that question has everything to do with those wise and foolish maidens. What exactly is it that is given into our hands to do? What the maidens are not given to do is to be the bridegroom or to host the wedding banquet. They are not the main event, nor do they make it happen. What they are to do is light the way so that guests can see the arrival of the honored one. They are to be ready to celebrate the moment he arrives. Not the agent, not the actor, 
but they, we are ushers, the audience. You can see how this works out in our faith. The event of consequence has already occurred and it belongs to Jesus. Now this can be hard to assimilate. Our salvation, yours and mine, is a story, first of all, about somebody else, not about us. Or efforts, our efforts will not win it for ourselves. We know this in our head, but so much of the rest of our life is earned and our culture is incessantly activist. But to be sure, your role and mine is not nothing. We are witnesses. That's what the maidens are to be. There is a definite role here, but not one that makes the main thing happen. It is rather one in which we behold it and retell it. We have something to do, but in such a way that it does not invade the action itself, which belongs to God, we are recipients of our redemption. Theologians like to talk about this by distinguishing justification, how God has already made you right with him through Jesus Christ, and sanctification, the things that we as his servants do to be his witnesses, to say, look over there, and if you understand what has been done, be grateful. The big thing is that the world-changing event is in no way ours. But being a witness to it, that has been put into our hands. And it has been put there by his son himself. Let me end where we began with our sense of hope in God who has his wayward world in his hands though we feel utterly hopeless as to the how and the when. It is enough for all of us particularly for our confirmands on this day, but all of us need our faith confirmed, it is enough to feel relieved, grateful, that the thing you and I most need is an utter gift. And it is important to admit our sense of helplessness in the meantime. And it is important to get on the work that has actually been very specifically put in our hands to be witnesses in word and deed to the bridegroom himself. For in him, Jesus Christ, God and his wayward and prodigal people have embraced each other. In him, the end of this long, hard, bloody human story does not end only in destruction, as it would be bound to end were we on our own. Nor are we simply to be crushed by the monsters out of the slime. But on the contrary, appearances notwithstanding, through no help of ours, though we are its witnesses, the story ends by a gift and a surprise and a party and a wedding feast. Amen.